I am really pleased to welcome Anna Henry to the show. Anna has several decades of experience in the social justice advocacy, both in the UK and globally. She was CEO of the Global Initiative to End Corporal Punishment of Children until 2020. And previously, she was Director of Children and Human Rights for the UK's National Human Rights Institution and Children's Ombudsman. For both bodies, leading on international policy, human rights treaty monitoring, regional and domestic human rights advocacy, and research and publications. She started her career as a community organiser, specialising in participatory research and advocacy, education and social justice. She worked for bodies such as Amnesty International, facilitating activism and human rights education, and for Praxis Refugee Community Organisation, setting up projects that included temporary housing, food banks and advice services for young refugees and asylum seekers, and projects to promote human rights education, political activism and community participation. She is currently working freelance as a consultant, providing support to non-profit leaders on organisational design and donor engagement strategies, as well as providing interim management and policy development for a penal reform NGO, delivering lived experience-centred advocacy. She is also a trustee of the international conflict prevention NGO, Safer World. We will, I'm sure, hear more from Anna about her interesting career shortly. But for now, welcome Anna to the Passion Factor, pursuing a career in human rights. Great to be here. Anna, I always start with um, inviting guests to sort of tell us where it all started in terms of your your human rights career and, and what motivated you to work in the human rights field. Well, this will age me a little bit, I think. (laughs) Growing up in London um, as a teenager in the 1980s, I think it was hard not to become politicised. I remember clearly the Brixton riots and later the poll tax riots. Mm. And further away in the international world, the anti-apartheid movement. I think for me, this created a real awareness of injustice in the structures of society and a real desire to play a part in trying to challenge them and change them. Yeah, right. absolutely. There's always sort of things happening around the world that, that prompt us and that sort of trigger us to sort of move into this space. I've, I've given a very short history there in the bio of your really fantastic career but perhaps you can share with us more what has been your own career path to date um we all take sort of weird and wonderful routes in our career but share with us a little bit of of what your career career path has been like well for me when I left college and we'll come on to talk about higher education I think Mm. but um I was lucky that I had the opportunity to to intern in a number of NGOs in London then there was a really clear and specific program within the welfare benefit system to allow people to to volunteer and work for free for charities in tandem with receiving those benefits and you know all of the kind of job search support or requirements that come along with that and that was a really you know great asset to me it allowed me to work for free for a number of charities I worked for Amnesty International Human Rights Watch and also the British Refugee Council and that just gives you a great introduction and the sort of beginnings of experience for me it was a collaboration between Human Rights Watch and the Refugee Council that really 
gave me my first kind of inspiration about where I wanted to go. It was in the 90s and there was a controversial immigration initiative called the whitelist introduced by the government then where a number of countries were sort of designated as safe and that therefore applications for refugee status just wouldn't be considered. Um, and Human Rights Watch at the time was working a lot on Nigeria and it was when the activist Ken Sarawia was executed for his activism and the collaboration between those two charities that I got involved with really inspired me to want to start working on protecting the right to seek refuge in, in the UK. So that's why I worked for a number of years, quite hands-on as a, as a community organiser, setting up relief services. So things like food banks and housing to provide a place of safety at a time during the 90s when you know immigration policy was really you know not welcoming uh, very similar to now really yeah and this gradually broadened out for me to supporting different uh, people within communities to start to try to influence policy so you know i started to run programs to engage young people in researching their local area and bringing their evidence to policymakers to change what was happening in their local areas. And it started to give me a real passion for enabling that voice, which I still work on today. But it also started to give me a real desire to influence that policy myself and to get really stuck in um, and try to influence the laws and policies that governments were putting in place and so I actually at that stage went back to college and I did a master's to enable me to to kind of slightly change direction for my career um after I think it was around 10 years of working as a community organizer so after that study I then moved into policy and worked for the two UK kind of human rights Watchdogs, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is a national human rights institution accredited by the UN as part of its human rights mechanism, and also for the Children's Commissioner, who is the Ombudsman for Children um, here in England. And then that's when I really got into developing policy advocacy campaigns that are still really what I do today. Um, using as many influencing tools as I could across different topics like inequality, criminal justice, uh, ill treatment by public institutions and failures of public institutions to protect human rights here in the UK. Um, and often using international mechanisms as well. And that gave me a really interesting kind of domestic UK policy experience combined with international policy. And so using the protections in the UN system, such as human rights treaties, um, and in Europe as well. So the European um, protections set out in the, the Convention on Human Rights and um, within the policies and practices of the European Union, and bringing them to bear to influence UK policy. And it was after that that I then... Um, moved into into a more global role and as and as you described in in your introduction was CEO for some years of a 
a global advocacy campaign to strengthen child protection laws in all countries of the world. We worked in every region of the world, providing training and advice to get better legal protection for children and working again a lot with the UN and the way it works to, to also secure those kinds of protections. And so for me, particularly now that I'm freelance, it's uh, I'm, I'm drawn to both the, the domestic, the kind of work on the national level policymaking, you know, and also uh, the global context, you know, where we work as a, you know, union of nations to, to better human rights protection and leverage those systems to, to, to improve human rights protections. I'm, I'm really interested in both. And I think I'll always be seeking a way to, to combine the two. That's really interesting. I think you've done that really neatly in, in, in your career there. Sort of, and I think I totally agree with you sort of bringing the international down to the domestic and seeing how that works on the ground um, and those kind of look, human rights ideals or human rights principles and actually seeing them, them work in practice. And then you're doing that, as you say, throughout, you've done that throughout your career there. And it kind of neatly brings me on to, to sort of, for the young professionals who are listening to, to working and breaking into the sector. Um, and I sort of have a, a few sort of questions around that. And I suppose from your wide and, and varied experience that, you, that you've had so, so far, what skills and qualities do you think you need to work in the human rights field to make you a, a successful and effective human rights professional? There are so many areas of work connected to protecting and enhancing human mm -hmm. rights. So I focus on designing and running advocacy activities and influencing governments and policymakers at all levels, national, regional, global, to secure change. And what I love is the diversity of this kind of work. It spans conducting research of all forms, um, lived experience, as well as data, quantitative research, communication strategies like social media and events, building partnerships, piloting new approaches, legal analysis or economic analysis, advising lawmakers, or even using strategic litigation to secure change and that diversity is great but it also means you can bring so many skills to a career in human rights whether it's communications you know people working with people galvanizing people organizing projects analytical skills it accommodates so many different abilities and I love working within teams where those different skills and knowledge areas are shared and, and exchanged and, and are combined together to create really powerful campaigns. But I think overall, for anyone working in human rights, I would say that you definitely need tenacity and being prepared for the long game to see change, persistence. And it's really helpful also, I think, to be able to see the bigger picture, to place your work within the context of what else is going on um, and to be able to think creatively and kind of outside the box uh, to think about new ways that we could be doing things. Um, we're going through so much change globally right now and very much within the sector, a lot of reflection about good ways of working that, that young people that come with great ideas, I think will be really valuable. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's a great suite of sort of skills to have there. And I, and I definitely hear what you're saying about the tenacity point that, you know, we have, it's about the small wins that we have yeah. as human rights professionals. I think, yeah. you know, we're not, I always say we're not going to sort of see the end of torture prevention, torture overnight there, mm. but it's, it's, we might see some legislation, you know, outlawing and things. So these small incremental wins and, and that's, I mean, certainly on my side, that's what kind of keeps me, keep me, keeps me going in terms of this work. Absolutely. Um, you, you alluded to it there in your sort of um, career journey there that you actually went back to study and took a master's at a, a later stage in your career there. And, and it's something I wanted to kind of just come back to because um, we see that many human rights employers, be it the international organisations, be it international NGOs, um, any sort of most organisations working now in the sector are asking for some sort of advanced degree in human rights or public international law or some iteration of that um, from young professionals. And I'd really be interested to hear your thoughts about that, whether you think it is important, valuable and and, and necessary. And secondly, sort of on top of that is when is the right time or the best time maybe to, to do a master's degree? Is it straight after you've just come out of university or maybe after a period of work experience? And Particularly, as I say, you know, you've had that you had that time out or career, and then went back to study. Yes, um, I'll answer that that question first. I think. I mean, I actually mm. did both. Right. <laughs> I went straight as an undergraduate to do a master's in international development because I was very lucky to land the funding to do so, right. mm-hmm. um, and you know that was a that was a great experience. Um, I, I studied at the School of Oriental and African, African Studies, which was which is a great and very very interesting and varied place to to be a student. Um, and then I went back later uh, to do uh, a master's in public administration, focusing on the management of and development of public policy. Um, whilst I was whilst I was working at a college. Uh, that's part of London University, Birkbeck, which really facilitates professional education. It, you know, the, the lectures are in the evening. Yeah. Um, it, it's centred around uh, fitting it in, uh, in a busy life. Um, I think I benefited most from coming to study later because I brought significant work experience by then and I was really focused on what it, I wanted to get out of the study and I was able to make it very, very relevant to my work um and it really did help me make a step change from being uh quite um hands-on uh involved in the development of um practical services and projects and move into the more analytical policy development world it really did help me but coming to your first point really about how Frequently, it's a requirement of a role. I think this is a really interesting question. I I think quite often it's it's not fair that it is. It can be really inequitable in my view, particularly for the entry level roles. And I hope that employers and recruiters are realizing this and really thinking carefully about the skills that they want to bring in and the skills and knowledge that they can impart to that person once they've joined. Because I feel that with two master's degrees, Mm -hmm. the greater part of my professional knowledge really comes from the job itself. 
Um, and so I think care should be taken to not create a barrier by asking for an advanced degree um, when, you know, it's not completely clear what it's going to offer to, to the job itself because it can create quite a significant barrier. Um, but I say that as someone who's, you know, who enjoys study and, and really benefited from it. So, you know, I don't want to sound like I don't you know, think it's a great thing to do, but I think we should be very careful when we're bringing staff in to think about what kind of experience we want to bring into the organisation. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's a huge investment of time and money on the part of yeah. a, a young person to, to, to take a master's degree. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, there is nothing better than just getting your, your feet wet, so to speak, and getting, and getting stuck into to the job and, and everything that you can learn from that. Um, but it is more and more now seeming par for the course that, that even to secure an internship at, at the UN there, they're asking for, for master's programs and, and, and it does, mm. you know, exclude many, many people who, for whatever reason, ca- cannot get the master's or, um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's a big debate at the moment. I agree. And, and kind of coming on to that sort of that point there about sort of accessibility there. And I know you, you've, I'm sure sat on many sides of the, of the table where you are recruiting for young professionals and you will have seen many CVs, um, cover letters. And it's something that me as a, as a human rights careers advisor sort of loosely um, advise on. And, and it'd be really great to hear about, in your view, what makes a good quote-unquote human rights CV and how can students really, uh, young professionals, ensure that their CV stands out um, from the crowd because there are so many great young professionals looking to, to work in this sector. Yes. Well, I think a rule for any any applicant really is to is to be careful to tailor it to the job in question and to ensure that the skills you're talking about um, are relevant to the job description. Um, because it is surprising how many applications don't do that. Um, I would even say for a job description where there are a relatively short number of points on the job description to actually almost use them as headings. Yeah. Um, to make it easier for for the person reading it uh, and very clear how you meet it Um, and not forgetting to include why you want the job to make sure that your enthusiasm comes through because that is important as much as the the skills or the experience you might have got. I mean, I think for, for a human rights role, a good CV will clearly show the practical skills and knowledge you've gained and for someone coming in at the beginning of their career it's really helpful to show how all of your experiences have contributed whether it's student activism or volunteering or working within your community your faith group um, all of that um, if you make it into kind of concrete demonstrable experience could be really really relevant and help show you've got the the kind of skills that that will allow you to do the job and I think the the digital world um, which is so different to the world was when I started in my career um, particularly social media gives people unprecedented ability to get involved in in influencing human rights um, and influencing policymakers it's been great to see some you know, highly influential social media campaigns 
um, and anyone can play a part or even lead such campaigns that you know can be used to evidence the skills you've got or blogs that you've written to include them links to them to show you have writing skills things like that give you a more of a chance to perhaps shape um you know a, a cv that shows you've got real passion for this work absolutely yeah no i mean this is, this is something that i'm hearing time and time again from from many senior human rights professionals that you know your passion really has to shine through your cv and, and your cover letter um from all different activities that you've that you've undertaken and also really important point there about writing to start to kind of curate and show that you are quote unquote a mini expert in your area so mm. that it, it, it really I, I think it really helps you to stand out yeah um and, and sort of a, a, I suppose aligned to that is um we all know that for any sector and indeed you know for the human rights sector networking is an important sort of piece um and I suppose you know helped to helping building your career and I thought that question to you is how, how is it assisted you in your own career and indeed any advice that you can offer to, to young professionals who might not feel hugely comfortable with getting out there talking to people who they don't know or approaching people who we don't, they don't know but I think there's a lot of value in networking. Yes absolutely um, I love networking actually <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm uh, <laughs> and I think it is an essential skill I think particularly if you're thinking of leadership roles mm. I think it's better framed as an interest in meeting people and hearing about their work and working with them. I think too often people think network is networking is going into a room full of people who are already talking to each other <laughs> and having to go in and introduce yourself. Um, and that does happen, but it's many, many more forms than that. And there are many ways to do it. Uh, for example, the digital platforms like LinkedIn or Twitter are great for helping you identify people that have information that you're interested in or work that you want to hear about or who may be interested in your work and a way to informally make contact. Um, and I think to anyone who feels nervous about it I would say that you know networking is very much part of the job as much as kind of writing reports or issuing a press release and so people expect it you know they won't think anything of it if you make contact with them wanting to know more about their work and generally people are only too happy to tell you about their work yeah um so to really um you know get get stuck into it I mean I think for me one example that comes to mind was when I had my very first job interview um, and I contacted a number of people that I'd worked with when I was an intern and a volunteer in, in a number of the charities to get their insights into how to prepare for, for that interview. Their advice was so helpful, uh, really helped me secure that first job. And it was also re revelatory to me how happy they were to, to help me. And I think ever since then, I've never hesitated in reaching out to new people because, you know, it is really, um, you know, a beneficial element to the work. And, you know, it's great to to be meeting new people. I think my advice is to always just ask um, and just see if you get a response. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, 
I tell people that, and it's quite true. I think I've become a bit of an addict on LinkedIn that I've been probably far too long on there. But um, you know, right, you know, reaching out to people who you don't know and asking for that kind of informational chat or coffee, or whatever. And now, you know, pandemic-wise, we can actually start to meet people a bit more. Well, certainly here in, in the UK where we're recording this. Um and people, I think, are generous and will give up their time. You're not asking for a job. You're not asking, you know, anything like that. You're just asking for their wealth of experience and knowledge and a little bit about their own journey. So I think there's so much value in that. Absolutely. Um, and, and sort of the, the, the final bit about sort of working and breaking into the sector, um, sort of get, getting your experience or first sort of bite at the cherry, um, Undertaking voluntary and pro bono opportunities as a first step. Um, what are your thoughts about that? And I mean, and particularly also the fact that they might be pro bono, they might be voluntary. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, well, as, as I said, uh, it was pivotal for me, yeah. really, um, working for, for a number of charities. I, I worked for a year uh, across three different charities before I got my first paid employment. And it certainly gave me essential experience, advice, as I've just described, and it helped me define where I wanted to go in the sector and the type of work I wanted to do. Um, and I was part of then a program called Charity Action, where you know the welfare benefit, the housing benefit, um, you know, was was in place, and I was, you know, allowed to work significant hours across those organizations for for a year to and it was recognized that it would give me work experience today in the UK at least supposedly you can volunteer whilst on universal credit um, which is exactly how I was really covering my living expenses while volunteering Um, and I hope this does provide a level playing field for young people wanting to get into the sector, um, but, you know, clearly not able to work for free. But I think it's critical that organisations recognise the power they have to bring in a more diverse workforce um, by providing paid internships Mm -hmm. um, and better entry-level opportunities and apprenticeships, for example, where... You know, you're bringing young people in and and training them on the job, giving them the experience and potentially the academic training um, to really get them, uh, you know, on that first step. Because we can really, really see over, you know, many decades um, still within the voluntary sector in the UK that the the, the diversity is not there that is needed. And kind of working for free has definitely played a role in in that uh, and it's something that um you know we as charity leaders really have to tackle yeah absolutely and i mean there's no reason why young professionals should not be recognized and valued for their work um as much as you know mid-career and senior professionals there and so there's a real i think powerful conversation that started um in in our sector there about sort of you know, not having unpaid internships as a, as a practice um, and ensuring that, that young professionals are paid um, as they should be. But yes, I, I fully accept your point there about the value that it brings and for you that it helped you to crystallise mm. where you might want to go in your career. Yeah. 
if I can sort of turn to looking at the sort of the day-to-day life of a of a busy human rights professional and, and charity leader there. Um, you're, you're a freelance now, but it would be great to hear from you what, you know, what, what's a typical day like for you even now or in your in your previous role? Um, share with that so that somebody can kind of get a sense of what it's like on the ground in, in the human rights world. Yes, yeah, so I manage organisations and develop advocacy campaigns to influence policy. So both national and international and I you know one reason I really love it is for the diversity of the day-to-day one day I could be signing off edits on a publication working with my team to plan a launch whether that's um, briefing media holding a seminar with speakers designing social media writing to governments so that they receive a copy of the report Uh, I could be sitting on an expert panel advising national government, for example, parliamentary committee, or meeting with donors that are interested in funding the work to really showcase what their financial support would achieve. I could be facilitating a discussion with people that have lived experience of the work that I'm doing to really hear about the challenges and barriers and ideas they have for change and working with them to make sure governments hear that I could be briefing a legal team to take action against policymakers for failing to protect rights or briefing a UN human rights treaty body about how a government has or has not protected human rights it's such a you know a busy and and diverse um, calendar usually of of meetings and, and pieces of work or I could be making sure we've off you know ordered in the office supplies or met our fire regulations um you know it's all part of the job um managing an organization and keeping it going uh you know like an engine um it's uh, it has many many moving parts absolutely yeah. we, we never quite know what's going to come across our desk yeah. each day and then firefighting as well throwing that in yeah. just yeah. it going there but but it's the variety that you that you enjoy right yeah Absolutely. Um, and, and thinking a little bit of sort of thinking about your your hugely diverse and, and uh, interesting career there, what for you has been perhaps the highlight or maybe there have been a couple of highlights that you can kind of share with us about, you know, the high spots of, of, of what you've done? I'm really privileged enough to say that it's, it's really hard when I thought about it to find mm. a particular um, highlight. It is always amazing when your work pays off and you see a law passed that better protects rights or you win a legal case, you know, that really, you know, in, enhances protection of human rights. That can take many years and it is, uh, it's so rewarding when that happens. But, you know, often that type of, uh, of reward, you know, doesn't come. And, and I've been, for example, overjoyed when a very senior figure for example references the work that my organization or that I have been doing um I've had the deputy secretary general of the UN refer to to the work that my organization has done or um you know uh, the the deputy prime minister here in the UK referring to to research that my team had done in parliament that might not bring about huge change but it's it shows that people are taking note that can influence and can use your work 
to take it forward. And that is always a great sense of um, impact. But I think the highest point for me is far more personal. Um, coming from the work that I did in, in my early career with people arriving in the UK seeking asylum, out of the blue one day, uh, a man got in touch with me uh, that I had worked with to find him housing, I think 15 years before, to tell me that he had settled, that he was doing well in his job, that he was thriving. You know, when you work directly with people, you often don't get to hear what happens to them after they move on from your project or your service. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's any better highlight for me than to hear that our project had helped him um, and that he remembered us. And, and wanted to thank us that was that was fantastic yeah that that that, that resonates so much with me as I was sort of working coming from the immigration and asylum yeah too and and we don't often hear the stories we don't often you know we if we win their case you know their life continues but when you do hear back from them and, and see that or hear that that life is going well for them it it means a lot definitely so it resonates and um, <clears throat> and equally I suppose sort of the, the flip side of that is um, have you faced sort of setbacks or challenges in your career and and I suppose also how did you how did you handle them yeah so probably one of the biggest challenges for me um, was last year not just because of the pandemic mm. um, but at the time a CEO of, a, of an excellent pioneer charity very small but hugely impactful at a global level, award-winning, actually, uh, in securing legal reform to protect children from corporal punishment. But facing real challenge in funding, um, there's a surprising scarcity of funding for domestic violence against children globally. So I took the step to merge the charity with a much bigger organisation. And... You know, it was a huge task, but really honestly heartbreaking for the staff involved, such a committed and expert team. But ultimately, I, I have to step back and see that the merger enabled the work of the charity to carry on and actually potentially give it higher profile, more sustainability. You know, the brand of the organisation is still there, the excellent website. Some of the staff were able to go with the work and carry it on. Mm -hmm. I think in difficult times, it's it's really important to take that step back and think about what will serve the mission of the organisation, what will help reach the goals that the organisation has set itself. Um, because sometimes these questions do lead to tough decisions, um, you know, and... Uh, to focus on, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier that the need for kind of persistence and tenacity to recognise, you know, that there will be these huge challenges, um, but to try to think, you know, what will what will serve, you know, our objectives best, what will, what will kind of keep the work going in the long run really helps get through those, those kind of challenging times. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm sure that must have been a very sort of, difficult and, and and rocky sort of moment for you there sort of leading that organization to to join a bigger one or to merge with the with the bigger charity there um 
But we learn from those experiences as well, right? We learn about absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and a sort of the, the sort of final question, really, in, in this little chapter here, is around sort of mentorship. Um, and I, and I sort of say this in a very sort of wide sense, because at all points through our career, I think we have people who advise us, guide us, and 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 sort of travel with us on our career journey. But I think it's especially important for young professionals to have um, that mentorship as they start out. And I suppose, you know, again, your thoughts about that and, and whether there have been people um, along your you know, along your journey as well who, who've helped and supported and guided you. Yes, I think it's indispensable. Um, I have benefited from mentors, from more formal coaching, um, and also action learning sets, uh, which I think are amazing, which is when a group kind of usually of a similar role, grade, experience, um, sit down and, and work through issues collaboratively together. I think it's a great methodology um, and great at any level for, for a professional. Um, and I suppose it's the mentors that have probably been with me, you know, longer term, um, just by dint, I suppose, of the type of role that a mentor plays rather than say a coach where you might have, you know, regular sessions for a set period, which, which I've done. And I think is a great, a great way of, of developing and helping solve problems. I mean, one mentor I have is, is um, somebody who was a, a manager for me many years ago, um, early in my career. He was my line manager. Um, but we uh, have collaborated since, frequently been in roles where, you know, we've worked together and he's now a professor of human rights. And, and I would still go to him to talk through uh, things that are happening in my career and to, to get his input and his his ideas and his advice um you know I think it's uh it, it is so helpful and um I would advise really you know if you if you work with someone or you know connect with someone through you know a project where you really have uh you know a great connection and um it's worth asking them you know, to, to play that role for you. Uh, they can always say no, but, um, you know, it's such a valuable resource to have. I think it's worth, you know, kind of always having it in your mind um, who might play that role for you. Absolutely. And I think, as you said, you know, just setting out the terms quite clearly at the start to make sure both sides know what what the other can give, also what certainly what the mentor can give in terms of time and etc but it's a very valuable important relationship and then you know carries with you as, as you go along your career mm. so sort of drawing this sort of to, to a little bit of a, a close there so um thinking about the the sort of human side of this work and how it impacts us as human rights professionals because we've both worked in the sector for a long time there and and, and it can be really tough because we're working on really difficult issues um human rights issues are inherently so. So, um, and we know that burnout and exhaustion are a thing, um, are an issue in our sector there. So I suppose it's really 
what advice and guidance can you impart to, to young professionals who are thinking about that, about just the lifestyle and the challenges um, and how really young professionals can, can take good care of themselves as they, as they start out in this world? Yeah, I'm glad there's growing awareness in the sector mm. about burnout and poor culture and stress. Um, and I think organisations are starting to really recognise the responsibility they have to build a safe culture for staff. Um, and I think, you know, right now, the the impact of the pandemic has really, you know, thrown that into sharp relief mm. um, for some people. Working from home has helped their well-being, but for some people it has done the absolute opposite. And I think you know, often for young people who um, are starting out um, to be isolated from the kind of office culture and to hear, you know, the work being discussed around them and to be able to approach people easily to ask questions, not having that um, probably makes the, the work experience far more uh, challenging that, than it would have been um, and it's so important to to recognize that and to to take the time to to make sure that that, that you're protecting your well-being for me um, booking time off in advance and committing to taking that time off for some kind of holiday every few months has been critical because I think if you leave it to the last minute you are always too busy to extricate yourself from the work and I think it's it's really important to protect that time and have that break to recharge um, even in a, a kind of lockdown situation to, to make sure you get that time away um, and, and to kind of rejuvenate yourself um, and it's well-being is something where a coach as we've just discussing is is really important I think it's uh, somebody separate to your organization who can hear your experiences and offer a view really helps not only with the work but also with managing your mental health and your well-being in the role and to know I suppose how to prioritize your health everyone is different but knowing how you personally decompress is really important you know whether it's sports or music you know hobbies um, whatever it is that gives you, you know, that headspace, um, you know, make sure that you you make time for that because it will help you deal with the job so much better. Um, it's really important to to keep that in in your life. Absolutely, yeah, they're really important important valuable words. I'm I'm just kind of lamenting the absence of the Zumba classes because that was my. <laughs> <laughs> No, so yeah. that, that was my kind of, you know, just, just relief actually getting out yeah. and doing that kind of exercise there. But well, maybe they'll resume again outside or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not the same, is it, in, it's not quite in front of a screen? No, <laughs> no absolutely not. Um, so any sort of, I don't know, final words, pearls of wisdom to, to those listeners who, after listening to our really great conversation there, says, yes, you know, this is still where my heart lies. This is still where I want to go in my career um yeah any any sort of final words I think well I think you know it's it it sounds like a bit of a cliche but I think it is so important to kind of find your passion um not only you know about the issues but you know the kind of response you want 
you know, the kind of way you want to get involved. It's very different to be a kind of number cruncher and a report writer to be someone who facilitates engagement and services and uh, events, for example, um, and to kind of find what you love uh, and that plays to your strengths is, is so important. And I think certainly from my perspective, several decades in is it's helpful to recognize that it's not a career is not going to be a kind of linear progression it's fascinating the twists and turns and the ups and downs um and I think just because your direction might be going in a different you know down a different path to others or to what you might have expected it's not necessarily a bad thing you know it's um there are there are many ways to to build a career and to to work on things that you're passionate about absolutely and I think you know the weird and wonderful route that my career has taken and lots of people have taken there yeah who'd have thought procurement would be sitting in there in the mix but it was (laughs) (laughs) absolutely Anna, you've been such a, a kind and, and open, you know, guest with it. Thank you. And if, if if listeners, you know, want to know more about you or reach you in some way, what's the best way to find you? I'm really here, keen to hear from people. I'm I'm easy to find. Um, my name, Anna Henry, is is how I go on LinkedIn and also Twitter. Um, yeah, so I would be really interested in hearing um if people have questions or want to get in touch that would be great it's been a real pleasure to to talk to you today